Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. In this passage here in Mark 7, we have Jesus healing a man afflicted with both deafness and a speech impediment. Uh, Hearing and speaking go together in life. Uh, Hearing and speaking go together in the Scriptures. First we hear, then we speak. We learn to speak by hearing. Think of babies. Babies are born not able to talk. Uh, But they can hear, and so we begin to speak to them, and over time they begin to speak back. They learn to speak themselves. Think of Adam. First, God spoke to Adam. Then after Adam heard God, he could speak back to God and to others. It's true for us in our own lives. Before we can speak to God... God has to speak to us. We listen to God's voice. We listen to God's voice in the Scripture so we can learn to talk back to God and talk to others rightly. Of course, the problem is we are hearing impaired. And so we have a speech impediment. We have a hearing problem. We don't hear God the way we ought. And therefore, we have a speech problem. We don't speak what is true and right. We are, you could say, spiritually disabled. Uh, We see certainly this was true of the disciples in the Gospels. Uh, In the next chapter, Jesus in Mark 8, 18, says to the disciples, Having ears, do you not hear? And of course, because they could not hear rightly, they could not speak rightly, they spoke all these wrong things that Jesus is repeatedly having to rebuke them for. And again, this is true of us as well. We are deaf to His voice on our own, and so we do not speak rightly of God on our own. The good news of this story is that Jesus has come to heal our ears. He's come to loosen our tongues so we can hear God's truth and speak His praises. We need to ask, why do we have this hearing and speaking Problem. Why don't we hear rightly so that we can in turn speak rightly? Why did the disciples have this hearing problem? There are several miracles like this one recorded in the Gospels. Why was there so much deafness and muteness in ancient Israel? I think it's clear. These were physical signs of their spiritual condition. The real problem in Israel was idolatry. Listen to how Psalm 115 describes idolatry. The idols and what comes of those who worship them. The idols have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. All those who worship them become like them. We become like what we worship. If we worship the dumb and deaf idols, we become dumb and deaf ourselves. But Yahweh the Lord is not like those idols. Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, is the God who speaks, the God who sees, the God who hears. In Exodus chapter 4, when the Lord calls on Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh, God wants Moses to be his mouthpiece, as it were. Uh, Moses objects because he too has some kind of speech impediment. 
And Yahweh says to him in Exodus 4, Who made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It's very interesting to me when Jesus explained why he taught in parables. In Mark 4, he quotes from Isaiah. Why did Jesus teach in parables? He spoke in parables so that people seeing may see but not perceive, and hearing may hear but not understand. Why did Jesus teach in parables? It was to stop up the people's ears. But now we see Him doing a miracle that unclogs their ears. See, what is this double miracle about? This healing of the man's ears and his mouth. Uh, Certainly in an ultimate sense, we can say Jesus came to heal our broken and dilapidated bodies. He heals deafness and muteness. He heals every physical malady and affliction that has come into the world because of sin. Ultimately, at the last day, He will give us resurrected bodies. These miracles point us to that ultimate final stage in our redemption, the resurrection body, the perfected and glorified body. They point us to the resurrection of our bodies at the last day when there will be no more physical flaws in any of us. In that day, we will have glorified bodies. We'll be glorious inside and out. But these miracles have another dimension. They're also types of spiritual realities. They are symbolic. They're metaphorical. You could even say they're parabolic. When Jesus says things like, let him who has ears hear, He's not talking about whether or not we have working eardrums. He's talking about whether or not we're truly receptive to His Word in our hearts. There's hearing, and then there's hearing. Not all who hear really hear. You can have the words of the Gospel bounce off of your eardrum. You can hear the words and understand them just fine, and yet not really hear them or understand them truly. We need the kind of hearing called for in Deuteronomy 6, where Moses says to the people, Hear! O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The true hearing. Truly hearing the Word of God includes believing and obeying the Word God speaks. It means hearing with understanding, hearing with trust, hearing with love. It's not just hearing with your ears, it's hearing with your heart. So when we read a miracle story like this one, we should not immediately spiritualize it. We need to understand Jesus is concerned with healing bodies and He will resurrect the body in the last day. So we shouldn't treat the miracles only as spiritual illustrations. Jesus really is interested in redeeming the body. But neither should we refuse to spiritualize miracle stories like this. They don't point us to spiritual Realities. They are, again, parables of what Jesus has come to do in saving us. How He opens our hearts to truly hear His Word with faith and with obedience and with love so that we begin to speak the truth about God and the world and ourselves. A miracle story like this shows us Jesus brings dead ears to life. He resurrects dead tongues. He gives life that is truly life. And so really what you have is an outer miracle that heals the body and an inner miracle that heals the soul. Now don't think of that in some kind of dualistic way. This is not a dualism between the inner and the outer. They go together. Human beings are integrated whole. 
So think about this. Just an example. How does God ordinarily put the gift of faith in our hearts? How does He put faith in our hearts? How does He awaken our hearts to trust in Him? How does He make our hearts to hear? Through the hearing of our ears. As our ears hear the Gospel preached, He works faith in our hearts. And then through our mouths, we confess that faith that is now in the heart. That's what Romans 10.17 says. Faith, which is in the heart, comes through hearing, which is with your ears. God changes the inside through the outside. He works outside in. Earlier in that chapter, Romans 10, we read it this morning. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, one believes, Paul says, and with the mouth, one confesses. Heart, mouth, ears, they're all connected. They all work together. That is to say, spiritual hearing is ordinarily granted through physical hearing. Your physical ears become spiritual receptors of God's truth when they're working right. Just as when you use your physical mouth rightly, it's confessing your faith that God has indeed raised Jesus from the dead. You're confessing the truth that you now believe in your heart. Well, as we've seen in Mark's Gospel in one episode after another, Mark is a master storyteller, and so he is here. Mark makes every word count. So let's look at this narrative. I've given you the big picture, what Jesus does in healing this man, what it means. But let's look at this in some more detail. Uh, Mark here again gives us the traveling itinerary of Jesus. He tells us where Jesus journeyed. He goes into the region of the Decapolis. Now we're going to see when we get to the end of this story why that matters, why these geographic details, these details about his location are important. For now, just note that the last time Jesus was in the region of the Decapolis, he saved a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. And that man went around telling people all throughout the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him. So this region was well prepared to receive another visit from Jesus. These are people who have heard about Jesus. Some people bring a deaf man to Jesus, this deaf mute. One thing you have to notice in Mark's Gospel is that friends are always bringing friends to Jesus. Friends bring friends to Jesus. Not only that, but friends trust Jesus on behalf of their friends. And so it is here. These uh, people obviously know that Jesus has great power to heal, so they bring uh, this man. This man is deaf, and he's probably deaf. Uh, well, he, he probably, uh, because of his deafness, is not able to speak. As I've already said, we learn how to speak through hearing. Because this man cannot hear rightly, he never learned how to speak rightly. Well, they beg Jesus to touch him. Uh, again, they know that Jesus has healed with touch already. Uh, they know that if Jesus and this man make contact, if Jesus touches this man, he will be united to Jesus, he'll be incorporated into Jesus and into his kingdom, and will receive the benefits Jesus has to offer. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes this man aside. Now, I think this is very important to understand, understanding what this miracle means. The reason I think it's important and interesting is because this sets up a parallel between this man and the disciples. See, what has Jesus been doing throughout Mark's Gospel? Jesus will teach publicly to the crowds, 
and then he will pull his disciples aside for private instruction. What is Jesus doing when he pulls his disciples aside? In a way, you could say he's seeking to open their ears. He's giving them private instruction. This man, because Jesus pulls him aside, we can connect him with the disciples. He is going to be for us a paradigm of discipleship. See, the disciples themselves are really deaf mutes in need of healing. He is a symbol of them. This man symbolizes the disciples. Again and again, we see Jesus asking his disciples, do you not understand? Don't you get it? And they don't. They need to have their ears open to rightly hear his voice. What Jesus does with this man will be a paradigm. It will show us what Jesus is doing with all who are his disciples. How he will truly give us ears to hear. Now the way Jesus performs this miracle uh, is certainly unusual. Uh, It's not the kind of thing we've seen Jesus do before. Most often when Jesus does a miracle, he simply touches someone. Or he speaks a word to them. And even at a great distance, the healing or the miracle is effective. Not so here. In this case, Jesus uses a number of gestures. Now, some have tried to connect this with different things in paganism, which does not seem to be a likely uh, connection. Uh, some have connected it with, well, they, they tried to say, well, this miracle must have been much more difficult, and that's why Jesus had to go through these gestures. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I think something else is going on here. Remember, this man cannot hear or speak. But he can touch and he can see. And so Jesus appeals to those senses. Jesus is using a kind of sign language to communicate to this man what he's doing. He does the miracle in this way for the man's sake. So the man will understand what Jesus is doing. Because these actions aren't necessary, they must be symbolic. They must carry symbolic freight. This is Jesus' way of showing the man what he's doing. Jesus works in slow motion, as it were, here, so we can understand in greater depth what this healing miracle really means. What does Jesus do? First, he thrusts his fingers into the man's ear. And we might just think, oh, Jesus is, you know, is doing this as a symbol of unclogging the man's ear. Certainly that's true. But we can go further than that. I think this actually has resonances with Exodus chapter 21. Uh, In Exodus chapter 21, there was a law for servants in Israel. Uh, See, normally servants would be set free in the seventh year. But if the servant loved his master, this is what Exodus 21 says, if the servant loves his master so much that rather than have his freedom, he wants to stay in his master's house, he can become what was known as a homeborn slave. He can attach himself to his master, to his master's family permanently. And in order to do this, in order to uh, enter into the master's house in this permanent way, he would have to go through a certain ritual. The master would take the servant to the doorpost and there would bore a hole in his ear, uh, most likely the lobe of the ear, with an owl. He would pierce the man's ear as if symbolically to say, your ears are now being opened permanently to the voice of your master. Your ears are being open to the voice of your master forever. Uh, this ritual is alluded to in places like Psalm 40, verse 6, where the psalmist says to God, You do not delight in sacrifices, but you have given me an open ear. 
In other words, what the psalmist is saying is what God really wanted from his people, even more than animal sacrifices, is he wanted them to be servants who loved him and who obeyed him. And so they were willing to have their ears bored open so they could hear his voice and be obedient to his voice forever. See, what's it mean to be a disciple? To be a disciple means you have your ears open to the voice of the Master. You've become a homeborn servant. True disciples are good listeners. We have ears to hear. We love our Master. We hang on His every word. We live by every word that proceeds from His mouth. Our ears have been bored open. What does Jesus do next? Jesus spits and it touches the man's tongue with it. Now, you know, we might think this is kind of disgusting, kind of creepy, it rankles our sensibilities. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't wash his hands before he ate. Now we find out he spits. What's going on with this guy? Uh, you know, it, it rankles our sensibilities, uh, the way we, we like things. Uh, but this kind of thing is all over the Bible. Uh, the Bible's full of stuff like spit and blood and hair and all kinds of other stuff that we just want to say, yuck, you know, we pretend it's not there. Uh, we can't do that. We've got to understand this. Uh, maybe we need a theology of spit. Okay? Uh, what's this mean? Uh, well, I wouldn't uh, claim to have it all figured out, uh, but I do think if we put this in context, we can make some sense out of it. I think this ties in with what has happened earlier in chapter 7. Uh, remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees earlier in that controversy over hand washing? Jesus said, What comes out of a man is unclean and makes him unclean. It's what comes out of the man that defiles him. And of course, you go back to the, the Old Covenant law, the, the Torah, and there's all kinds of laws where when something comes from the inside of a person to the outside, it does have this defiling effect. Uh, further, there's a story back in Numbers chapter 12 that suggests that one person could bring shame or uncleanness on another by spitting on them. Uh, Numbers chapter 12 is the story where Miriam is punished. Uh, Moses married an Ethiopian woman, uh, a woman from Africa. Uh, he married a black woman. And Miriam opposed this interracial marriage, and she is punished for it. And we'll go into all the details of that in Numbers 12. But one thing that is said there, the Lord says in Numbers chapter 12, if her father had spit in her face, would she not be shamed for seven days? Spitting brings uh, shame or uncleanness. Uh, under the law, spit is one of those things that comes out of a man and defiles. But when we looked at that story in the beginning of Mark chapter 7, what did we see? We saw that while this is true of the Israelites and in a certain way true of us, it's not so with Jesus. What flows out of Jesus doesn't defile. What flows out of Jesus brings life and cleansing. Indeed, John chapter 7 tells us a river of living water flows out of Jesus. That river is the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus spits, what's coming out of Jesus, it's not unclean, it's not defiling, it's a sign, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the water that flows out of Him. And when Jesus takes His spit and puts it on this man's tongue, it is as if the Spirit of Jesus is bringing this man's withered tongue to life. He washes this man's tongue clean. He baptizes this man's tongue. Uh, think about Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out. It's the baptism of the church with the Spirit. 
And what happens? The tongues of the disciples come to life so they can preach the Gospel in a variety of languages. Tongues of fire come and rest upon the disciples and their tongues come to life and begin to preach the Gospel in all these different languages. I think something like that has happened here. This man's tongue is being baptized with the Spirit of Jesus. Remember, all this is a kind of sign language. There's no reason for Jesus to go through these particular actions unless they carry symbolic theological freight. By doing the miracle this way, Jesus is communicating to the man through these symbolic gestures. He's communicating to this man how He will heal him, what the healing means. What does Jesus do next? Jesus looks up to heaven. Again, I think He wants the man to know the power for this miracle comes from God. This is a posture of prayer. And then Mark tells us Jesus sighed. And certainly I think this sigh, this groan, uh, shows you the compassion of Jesus. It's, it's an inarticulate groan of pain. Why does Jesus sigh? Jesus sighs, Jesus groans. Because Jesus feels the man's pain. Jesus hates sin. And He hates all the effects of sin. He hates the curse. He hates death in all its forms. He wants to take on and deal with death in all its manifestations. Even dead ears. A dead mouth. It's interesting. The word describing the sigh of Jesus here is the same word Paul uses in Romans 8. When he says the whole creation groans for redemption. And then he says even we ourselves groan awaiting the redemption of our bodies. There's this groaning, this longing for redemption. This is a groan that expresses the longing of Jesus. He longs not only for the healing of this man, but for the healing of the whole creation. Jesus isn't sighing or groaning because He Himself is in need of Redemption, But in his groan, he identifies with this man. He identifies with this world as it stands in need of redemption. This is a, a groan, a sign, a longing for the fullness of redemption. Then Jesus speaks. Jesus says in Aramaic that Mark has preserved for us, a fathatha, be opened. He commands the man, be opened, speaking to his ears and his mouth. And Mark tells us, immediately his ears were open and his tongue loosed from its impediment. He could speak plainly. The man is healed. But then the story takes another interesting turn. Jesus points to keep the miracle a secret. He commands those witnessing this not to tell anybody but his command to keep it a secret backfires. The more he commands silence, the more widely the people proclaim it. This is not just a leak, like a secret leaking out. Uh, it's being poured out all over. Everyone around, it seems, has their tongue loosened and begins speaking of Jesus. Jesus says, don't tell. They tell anyway. But you know, what would you expect? What could Jesus have expected? This man has never been able to talk. Jesus heals him so he can talk. And then Jesus tells him not to talk. Uh, you can see how that's just probably not going to work. This man goes from can't talk to don't talk, but he talks anyway. Now, this is, this is really interesting. You know, this, this, this whole theme of Jesus wanting to keep His identity secret until after His death and resurrection, this is known as the Messianic secret 
It's a big theme in Mark's Gospel. There are multiple layers of meaning that go into the Messianic secret. Uh, it's not just one thing. Uh, some of the layers of this Messianic secret, we've already talked about. I don't want to repeat that here. But let me give you another angle on this. You know, Why does Jesus want his identity kept secret, this miracle kept secret? Um, what's going on in this particular context? Let me call your attention to something. This is one of those places where I think the chapter break kind of obscures the flow of the story. You keep reading into Mark chapter 8 and you come to what is really the main question, the real heart of Mark's Gospel. It's the question, who is Jesus? In the next chapter, Jesus is going to ask His disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do the people out there say that I am? And then He's going to ask Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, he says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. So Peter gets the right answer. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And then we can begin to see why. Why Jesus doesn't want them to tell anyone. Jesus begins to talk about his coming death at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And Peter's thinking, I've just confessed you're the Christ. That means you're the king. You're going to take over and run everything. How dare you talk about this suffering? You're not going to suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders. You're going to punish them, right? But when Peter challenges Jesus over this, Jesus in turn rebukes Peter. See, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Jesus starts talking about his suffering. Peter rebukes him for that. Jesus in turn rebukes Peter. What's the point? The point is this. At this juncture in the story, people can give the right answer to the question of Jesus' identity. But they do so for the wrong reason. They rightly identify Jesus as Messiah, but they do so for the wrong reasons. People might hail Jesus as Messiah at this point because of His miracles, but they don't understand what Messiahship really means. Indeed, they can't understand what Messiahship, what kingship really means until Jesus goes to His cross and lays down His life for His people. That's going to reveal the true meaning of His kingship. He wants them silenced for now because before they can speak, they need to hear. They need to hear more. They need to hear more of who Jesus is. They need to hear about the cross before they can speak rightly about Jesus. Because until the cross happens, they don't really understand who Jesus is. Oh yes, the miracles of Jesus do reveal His kingdom. They reveal His kingdom to be sure. But those who view Jesus as nothing more than a miracle worker are missing the point of the miracles and missing what Messiahship really means. The miracles cannot be understood until the cross. And why is that? What's the connection here? Jesus does all these miracles that deal with different forms of of, of sin and death and, and the effects of death in the world. Jesus does all these miracles because at the cross He will deal with sin and He will deal with the curse that underlies all these maladies He's been healing. The miracles are are kind of partial cures. The real cure is going to come at the cross. All His healing miracles anticipate the cross where He will deal with sin and deal with death. 
He'll deal with the sin and death that are at the root of all that is wrong with the world. No doubt Isaiah 53 stands in the background of all of this. Isaiah 53, uh, the great suffering servant prophecy. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, his words ultimately come to fulfillment in Jesus at the cross. Listen to some words out of some, some lines out of Isaiah 53. Speaking of Jesus, he was smitten and afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. Where does the real healing come from? Not just from the word of power or touch or different gestures Jesus does. The real power of healing is found in His stripes, His suffering, His cross. Isaiah 53 goes on, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He became like the mute who could not speak. He opened not His mouth as a sheep before its shears is silent. So He opened not His mouth. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief, to make his life a sin offering. See, it's the cross that defines Messiahship, not the miracle. It's the cross. The cross explains what the miracles mean and how they work and why they work. The power behind the healings is the power of the cross. The power behind the miracles is the power of the cross. Of course, that's just the issue. The cross. The cross is the last thing anyone in that world, in this context, would have associated with Messiahship. Crosses are not for Messiahs, they're for failed Messiahs. When your would-be Messiah ends up on a cross, that's how you know he wasn't the right guy. You bet on the wrong racehorse. That's why Jesus doesn't want them going around talking about who he is, because they don't get it yet. They don't understand what messiahship, what kingship really means. It means Jesus will lay down His life. The righteous for the unrighteous. In order to save us. In order to rescue us. In order to heal us. When it comes to messiahship, their preconceptions are misconceptions. It's on the cross that Jesus will bring in His kingdom. Where He takes the punishment we deserve. Where He absorbs into Himself all that is wrong with us, all that is wrong with the world, where He bears the curse for our sake. Indeed, on the cross, He is afflicted with our curse. He suffers the wrath we deserve. He endures the curse that we might receive. Blessing. Now look at how Mark's account ends. Despite the fact that the people really don't get it. They really don't understand what Jesus came to do. They really don't understand what it means for Him to be Messiah. In another twist of irony, Mark's loaded up with irony, the things they say about Jesus are more true than they ever could have imagined. What do they say? There's two parts to what they say about Jesus. First they say, He has done all things well. I want to remind you, this is a Greek region. Uh, their Bible in this region would have been the Septuagint, most likely, a Greek translation of what we call the Old Testament. Let me give you a little more literal rendering of what the people here actually say. They say He has made all things good. That's what they say. It's actually clearly uh, an echo. It's got the same verb, the same vocabulary as the Septuagint of Genesis 131. 
the creation account. God saw all He had made, and behold, it was good. So intentional or not, they are attributing to Jesus nothing less than being the Creator. The Creator in the flesh. The One who has come to bring in a new creation. And He shows He's doing that by making new mouths and new ears and new hearts and ultimately a new world. But that's not all. They don't just echo Genesis 1.31. They go on they say, He makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is an echo of another Old Testament passage. We read it this morning. Isaiah 35. Isaiah's beautiful prophecy where Isaiah describes what God will do when God comes to the region of Lebanon. Which happens to be exactly where Jesus is when He meets this man at the end of Mark 7. That's why Mark has given us his geographic coordinates. So we can locate this on the map and we can look at where Isaiah said these things would happen on his map and they match up. Isaiah 35 says, The Lord will come and save you. He will strengthen weak hands and feeble legs. We've already seen Jesus do those miracles in this Gospel. Isaiah 35 goes on, The eyes of the blind shall be opened. Jesus is going to do that in the next chapter. And then Isaiah says, The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Mark is showing, and I think these people at least grasp this, the ancient promises are coming to fulfillment. In fact, I should tell you this too, just to add to it. The word for muteness, or really for this man's speech impediment, it's used in Isaiah 35, again in the Greek translation of the Scriptures. Very rare, unusual word. It's that same rare, unusual word that's used here in Mark 7. The link there, the connection is unmistakable. Mark wants us to connect this with Isaiah 35. Jesus is fulfilling what Isaiah said Yahweh would do when He came to this territory. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. He is love in the flesh. He is grace in the flesh. He is mercy in the flesh. He is the Creator and the Recreator. The One who does all things well. The One who restores what is broken. Who heals both bodies and souls. Who helps the needy. Who forgives our sins. Who sets the world to rights. If you hear His voice today, do not harden your heart. Instead, thank Him for giving you ears to hear and a voice to praise. He opened your ears to hear His Gospel to believe His truth. You didn't hear and believe because you're better or smarter than anybody else. No, you hear and believe because Jesus has been gracious to you. Jesus has unstopped and unclogged your ears. He has bored a hole in your ears. He has bored your ears open and made you a servant in His household. And so listen to what Jesus has to say. Listen to what Jesus has to say about your salvation. Listen to what Jesus has to say about your sexuality. Listen to what Jesus has to say about your money. Listen to what Jesus has to say about your relationships. Listen to what Jesus has to say about your speech. Listen to what Jesus has to say about all of life. Hear His voice and speak His prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, may we hear and speak May we hear Your truth, the Gospel. And may we speak the truth, Your praises. 
Oh Lord, we ask You unblock our ears that we might not be deaf to Your voice. Unchain our tongues so we can sing with joy. Oh Lord, we know ears to hear are a gift. A mouth to speak is a gift. Eyes to see are a gift. Faith is a gift. We thank You for Your gifts, O oh Lord. Amen.